Welcome to a podcast on behalf of the Center for Inclusive Child Care, the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health, and the Minnesota Preschool Development Grant. This is a podcast focused on trauma-responsive care in early childhood settings. Thank you for joining us for this great discussion with our panel, Tanya Rivera, Nidra Robinson, Lily Crooks, and Adriel Handovit, as we discuss the importance of understanding trauma in early childhood settings. Welcome to Trauma Responsive Care in Early Childhood Settings. On behalf of the Center for Inclusive Child Care, the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health, and the Preschool Development Grant, I'm Priscilla Weigel, the Executive Director of the Center for Inclusive Child Care, and I'm really happy to welcome all of you online here, and also some, very few, in person. We had to make a quick switch because of the air quality in Minnesota today, and our live outdoor event turned into an indoor event. Thankfully, MACMA had um, this lovely space for us to do a shift and so here we are and we're thrilled that all of you have joined us. We hope that you'll find this evening informative and helpful and also just honoring of the work that you're already doing. So with that I'm going to pass it off to our moderator and facilitator Ariel Handovit. She is the early childhood director at the Northside Achievement Zone and she's going to take it from here. Thanks Ariel. Awesome. Thank you, Priscilla. Welcome everyone online to our panel. We're so excited to have you. Um, we have Tanya Rivera and Lily Crooks and Nidra Robinson here, and they'll go ahead and introduce themselves in just a moment. But I wanted to take a moment to welcome you all and just let you know that anytime you have questions, feel free to type them in the chat and we have people here that can bring them up to the table and get those answered for you. We appreciate everyone's flexibility and we know that's part of being trauma responsive is being flexible. And so we had to implement some of that tonight, which feels like the perfect um, lead into this conversation. So I, I really hope, my hope for this panel discussion is that for those people working with young children and families to see the ways in which they're already providing trauma-informed care and healing-centered practice. We're already doing a lot of these things in our settings, and my hope is in this conversation that the three ladies here can lift that up and talk a little bit more about the trauma-informed care they provide in each of their settings. So I just wanted to start by highlighting a few key principles of trauma-informed care, and I pulled these from the SAMHSA website. But they talk about creating safe and trusting environments, allowing for collaboration, empowerment and choice, and making considerations for culture. So in my experience in early care and education, I've seen these principles as the foundation for everything we do with young children and families. And I know our panelists, we've had conversations and they have also implemented these things in their care. So let us know in the chat, what do you all hope to see from this panel discussion? Please feel free to comment on Facebook and we'll get the questions to each of these ladies. So let's start with introductions. If each panel member could tell me tell us who you are, what your hope uh, what your hope is for lifting up in this conversation and then a little bit more about your role in the early childhood field and we'll start with Tanya. Hello everyone. My name is Tanya Rivera. I work at a Spanish immersion childcare here in Minneapolis. It's called Circulo Amigos Childcare Center. So my role there is I am the program manager. I pretty much oversee all of the operations in the facility and also the educational coordination, the approaches we do, all of that educative uh, material that we incorporate into our work. Um, so I've been working with early childhood about 17 years now. So pretty much grew up into this 
Uh, I started when I was 13 years old at a family home childcare, and then from there merged into a childcare center, and then just my career and my education just went fully onto early childhood education. That's my passion. And what I am hoping to lift is just non-judgmental care and action with our families and children experiencing trauma. Thank you, Tanya. Hi, everybody. My name is Lily Crooks. I am the director at Seward Child Care Center in South Minneapolis. Um, Seward Child Care Center is a really small, uh, cooperatively founded preschool. It's been around since 1973. Um, and I've been there since 2013, and I've been in a leadership role there since 2018. Um, we're pretty small, and uh, my role as director, as other preschool directors I'm sure can attest, is both admin and spreadsheets and management and also wiping noses and fixing broken toilets and filling in in the classroom. Um, so I do a lot, I wear a lot of hats, but um, I'm really fortunate that the community where I work and um, the culture where I work is very cooperative and democratically run. And so we all are sort of responsible for each other and helping each other out. So um, I've been really grateful to work there uh, since beginning my uh, journey in early childhood education. Awesome, thank you, Lily. Oh, and I want to lift something up. Yeah, if there's anything you want to lift up in this conversation. Yes, I would like very much to make sure that um, everyone who's listening is hearing that staff at preschools are doing the most. And um, in particular, I want to make sure that even if I don't specifically mention them, my staff has really stepped up in the last year and been really incredible and um, has has taken so much on with so much grace. And I know that everyone in this field is doing a lot all the time, and so I want to make sure that that is heard and felt in this. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nidra Robinson, and I'm the Early Childhood Program Manager at Simpson Housing Services. And at Simpson Housing, what we do is we house and support and advocate for those that are experiencing homelessness. And I have the privilege and the joy of working with our youngest participants. So we work with uh, my team works with uh, zero to five so we, and their parents. So we're working with those parents that are in transitional housing. They've come out of shelter um, so, and working toward long-term long permanent housing. So at, at Simpson, we have a two-generation approach. So as we work with the adult or the parents to find housing and jobs and be able to finish school, at the same time, simultaneously, we're working with the children, and I am working with the children zero to five. So that's what I, I do. I've been in early childhood a long time, longer than anyone on this panel, I'm sure, in so many different capacities, but it's, it's my joy, it's my passion, and uh, I, I have, I've been an um, owner of a, of a child care center, I, I teach, I'm an adjunct, so I teach early childhood, and now I'm back to being able to see children and their parents every day. So it's, it's, it's been a, a journey, but it's been a, a journey that I, I would never change. So, um, I want to lift up that there are many different ways that we are supporting families and children. And people think of us as just, in so many ways, as babysitters and what we, that, you know, that we just work 
in child care centers, but there's many different ways in which we are able to work with, with uh, parents and families. And this is the, what we do at Simpson is certainly um, an integral part of what happens in the early childhood center because we rely on those centers to help us with our families to be able to work and go to school. Thank you. I appreciate all of your perspectives that you're talking about. And as um, the audience hears each of their introductions and kind of what they do in each of their roles, feel free to chat a question and let us know what you're thinking about if there's any further questions you have for any of them as we uh, go along in this panel. So one of the important components of working with young children and families is having self-awareness. And when we are aware of our own values and beliefs and how they um, come into our work every day, we're better able to identify um, how we affect the children and families that we work with. And so I'm, I wanted to link that to the diversity-informed tenants in the work with infants, children, and young families. And tenant number one talks about um, how self-awareness leads to better services for families. So my question for the three of you is, in what ways have you supported self-awareness and well-being in your organization? And can you think of ways you might further incorporate uh, self-awareness in your work with young children and families? So we'll start with Lily for this question. Sure. Um, I can talk about, uh, at our center, we have really tried to develop and maintain a culture of reflective practice. Um, we've been talking about it for many years, and we've had varying levels of success. Always the challenge with reflective practice is finding time to actually be outside of the classroom, to sit in an organized, calm way and reflect on your work and reflect on your actions in the classroom or where you'd like to go and, and with your kids or with your co-teachers. Um, but we, because I feel like reflective practice is sort of like good posture. You're not necessarily gonna do it all the time, but every time you do it, it's good for you. <laughs> um, and so if you can do it sometimes and it's in the back of your mind um, and you make it sort of a part of, of your, the way your center functions, um, it really helps build uh, a, a habit of reflecting in the moment and taking time without, while still maintaining work-life boundaries and thinking about you know how the day went and what you might do, do differently next time. Um, it also ties directly in with the observation cycle for children, where you're going to try something, think about it, uh, reflect on it, and then try it again and kind of keep that. Uh, cycle going, and I think that that really um, helped us, especially in COVID times and in the last year, even though it was, again, not perfect. It's not like we had, you know, a, a really organized, reflective time, but it really helped everyone with being aware of when they needed support or when they were going to just be off for a day and, you know, try again tomorrow. That's okay. We're all being here together. So. Yeah, Lily, I appreciate that you talked about the reflective process being a parallel process. So not only is it helping with your work with coworkers and yourself, but then implementing that with children and how you can see that cycle happening within trying things in the classroom. So I just really appreciate that. And then the other thing I want to lift up is that you talked about how it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, it's not going to be perfect. Uh, we know that work with young children is messy, and so some of the other things we do might might not be perfect, but you still make an effort to make that happen, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, thank you. So 
for our center, similar to what she said, is we try to coordinate the mental health consultations as frequently as possible. Of course, administratively, that's pretty much a sacrifice sometimes because it takes a lot of coordinating and you know, covering uh, classrooms and just juggling things, right, in a way that meets all of the licensing requirements. But we do make that sacrifice because we're aware of the importance of this. Um, it's important for the entire classroom teachers uh, to meet as a group and individually. Um, we found that that's been very helpful and we really seek uh, MACMA's help during these last two years with a lot of things that, you know, we think our teachers needed to reflect and just talk about um, with professionals. Also, just on a day-to-day -day practice, what we do, we like to be very communicative with our staff, our teachers. We like to have that relationship of trust of, hey, do you need something? Are you okay? What's do you need a day off? Are you going through something? What can we do for you? Any resources that we can provide? So that's how we try to be there for our teachers and try to see, you know, from a place of empathy if they need something or, you know, to kind of self-reflect. Um, we also do a lot of trainings in our uh, staff development days that focus on diversity, inclusion, and unconscious bias. That's something that we prioritize because it helps us be self-aware. For us, we have to remember that self-awareness is our daily interactions and behaviors and how we communicate with our families. And we have to bring our best to working with families because they, they deserve that and that's, that's what they really need. Most of our families, 100% of our families, I won't say most of them, um, are experiencing trauma. And we have to be very careful not to take on a person's trauma. It's really easy to do that when you're sitting and listening to someone's story or when you're seeing what's happening to them. So we have to be self-aware not to make our meetings or our connections with them a trauma event for ourselves. So we have to, um, we, we need to be able to bring calm to when they're in chaos. We need to be able to bring energy when they're tired, you know, we need to be able to problem solve when, when it's confusing or overwhelming for them and help them bring a sense of order. So if we are not self-aware for ourselves, it's easy to kind of fall down into that, uh, into to what they're feeling at the time, and that's not very helpful for them. We also have to, and we've been talking a lot at Simpson about not falling into saviorism. It's very easy to fall into saviorism because we know what we want, well, how we want people's lives to be. And we know that, uh, that we can't do that. You know, we can't, we can't make the changes for people. People have to make their own changes. So we, we have to be careful not to, to have that saviorism in terms of knowing what's best for, for a family. Um, if families know what's best for themselves. So we have to be very aware of not wanting more than they want or not wanting it in a different way than they want. And we can't, we can't really change necessarily a, a family. We can't change their circumstances. It has to come from within. And it's, and it's easier sometimes for us to say, okay, I, I, this is how I would do it or this is where I would go. And we have to be careful not to be able to, 
you know, we have to do that because it, it takes away their power mm -hmm. and it takes away uh, empowerment for them to make the decisions that they, they need to make to, to move forward. So saviorism for, um, we have to be really self-aware when it comes to saviorism because it's so easy to, to fall into that. And that's really about us and not the families that we work with when we do that. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up that point. I kind of hear you all talk about how your own self-awareness can lead to empowering others to do that. And as leaders, you're all working and modeling those self-reflective practices. And so then your teachers can do that for children and families. And um, Nija, I love that you connected that to empowerment because I think it does empower you to make decisions and help you empower um, teachers as well. So I really appreciate um, that piece of it. So the other um, conversation I want to have is about language. So we know that language can help kids regulate, make sense of their experiences, um, and the diversity informed tenant number six reminds us about language and how it can really hurt or heal. So I wanted to read this tenant for everyone as I just feel like it really relates to trauma responsive care. So the diversity informed practice recognizes the power of language to divide or connect um, deintegrate or celebrate, hurt or heal. We strive to use language, including body language, imagery, and other models, modes of nonverbal communication in ways that most inclusively support all children and their families, caregivers, and communities. So my question to you is, can you think of a time when language was able to heal in your setting, and what did that look like? And then how are you mindful to support that with everyone at your site? So Tanya, do you want to start with this one? Yes, so for that question, language, it's definitely something we're mindful of, nonverbal and verbally. Um, even with the t-shirt I'm wearing today, it's filled with um, a lot of motivational, inspirational messages, a lot of positive things such as um, collaboration, wisdom, and all sorts of imagery to promote that, promote that we're welcoming, promote um, inclusion, diversity, and hope. That's something that we really value. And even with our building, our facilities, uh, we have murals all over the building, one that we're actually just working on right now that our goal, given that we're in the East Phillips neighborhood and everything we've been through and we've been seeing for decades, um, we just want there to be spaces for community and for reflection messages to show that we're welcoming to anybody, uh, spaces to reflect on choices, on, on you know, life itself and make good, good choices, right? And also just even in the mornings with our morning anthem, we have something called Imno a la Alegria, which translates to um, joy. I think it's like a joy hymn. So it's like about happiness anthem and all that. It's in Spanish. It's our school Spanish immersion. And it just pretty much talks about a lot of positive messages. The point to this is to have that moment to center ourselves to just everyone gather, pause what you're doing, and just relax. Relax and listen to all the positive messages that you're gonna hear for the next two minutes, right? And also just have that positivity. And that's, that's something that we focus on, and even with our interactions, that's what I value the most. My expectations for our 
teachers, for administrators, for everybody, is to treat children with respect, with dignity, and that really pretty much sets the foundation to having a space where they feel safe and that they have trusting adults that care for them and will advocate for them. Tanya, I really love how you started this out with, when we, when we talk about language, the first thing that comes to my mind is verbals. And you really started out with imagery and how you used your um, shirt that you're wearing and the murals at um, your childcare center to really promote this language of healing. And I love that. I feel um, imagery is a way that can go across different cultures, different languages, and that just can take down some of the barriers, and I really appreciate that. And then you talked a, a little bit about some healing words that you use in your space, but I'm just going to put this out there. Um, one of the questions we received on Facebook um, are, are there some healing words or phrases you have found especially helpful to use with children? So Lily and Nidra, as you answer, if you can think a little bit about um, if there's any um, words we can give to our audience, um, healing words that you might use with children. Go ahead, Deidre. Um, we know that language can heal or not. And because it's how we express ourselves, it really, really matters. What I always try to think of is what children and, and families have already heard. And, and in our case, most of the time, they've been very hurtful words. Um, it's people telling them they're dumb or they're lazy or they're ugly or, or they're worthless. So they don't hear positive words and most of what they hear is negative. So I try to listen to them and listen to their stories to hear what they've already heard. And then I try to make sure that I don't use any language like that. In fact, that I, I, I make very opposite language and that I'm, I'm using positive language instead of what they have, have heard. We have a word that one of my uh, coworkers uses for all of us, and that's using words to support their greatness. We're always trying to support their greatness for them, for the children, and for um, the parents. So the other part of that to me is listening. It's that other side of language, because that's how we know where to go. We listen to their stories, we listen to their pain, if we can hear from them what they need, then we're able to provide what they need. Um, so listening is, is, is just as important as what words we use. So we're always trying to listen to stories, listen to what they need, and, and then provide them with that. But one of the, the, our favorite sayings for them, like I said, was um, that we, their greatness. We talk about them in, in that kind of way. So there's not a particular phrase that we use, but always making sure that we're not saying what they've already heard. I love how you put that. I, I want you to say that again, if you remember, of this idea of listening and then not saying it again. So do you mind saying that again? I just think it's beautiful. I think I was saying, <laughs> no, that, that we have to listen to know what they've already heard. Yes. Because yeah. they, they will tell you what they've already heard. And then we have to switch that up and use words that they haven't heard, like I'm wow. proud of you, or that, that you look really good today, or that, you know, happy words and words that are positive with them. That is so powerful, Nija. Thanks for sharing. So I'll just talk about um, a little bit about 
scripts, for lack of a better term, and using um, the same language repeatedly with small children so that they can learn those terms and those words and then sort of adopt them for themselves and then grow from there. So for example, at our center, we have two guidelines that are rules that are consistent across all three classrooms. And those two rules or guidelines are we take care of each other and we solve problems together. And we start that in the toddler room and we carry it all the way through to the five-year-olds. And so the kids are hearing, oh, you know, it's a good thing we solve problems together at our school, so let's figure that out. Or, oh, remember, we need to take care of each other. Is that taking care of this person? Those two guidelines cover everything that you need them to cover. So it's very simple. It's very, um, it, it promotes empathy. It's a very simple um, couple of rules. And repeating that throughout the child's time with us um, they really do start to take those to heart and take ownership of those guidelines. Um, another script that we uh, like to use at our center is we are a, a no I'm sorry zone. We don't like the I'm sorry's um, at our school. Uh, so if there is a, a conflict or an injury or um, something in which a child is hurt or offended by another child, um, we ask them to check in. And again, this is something we do uh, often in the toddler room, the teacher is checking in on behalf of the child. But um, the script for the children is asking, are you okay? And what can I do to help you? And even if the offending child says, are you okay? In like an angry or upset way, that still gives the other child a chance to say how they're feeling or say, no, I'm not okay, or yes, I guess I'm okay, and, and gives a little bit of space for the other child to hear the impact of their actions. And then with, is there something I can do to help you? It helps the one child advocate for themselves and allows the other child to be a partner in healing that relationship or fixing that problem. It's, it's four-year-old restorative justice. It's really um, a really um, simple but effective way to both build empathy and empowerment and self-advocacy. And I mean, I've learned a lot in my adult life from for, in solving problems that way. <laughs> and um, because we know that Acknowledging feelings is such a huge thing and helping children develop the language to, to express their feelings and then also hear other people's feelings and, and respond to them um, is something that I know a lot of early childhood educators are, are always working on and um, that language is, is not, uh, it, it needs to be taught, it needs to be helped and fostered and, and um, it just doesn't come naturally necessarily. So. Um, yeah, that's something I'm, I'm pretty proud of at our center and that, uh, yeah, we use every day. I have been to Seward before and I've seen that implemented so well. And I know that that is all the children know exactly what's going to happen with problem solving and what to expect. And I, I think that part of that is that there's two guidelines. It's not, you know, 15, it's only two. So I think it makes it a little easier to, um, easier to remember. And also you speak to it being healing language, but also being trauma informed in a way of, um, 
something they can remember, something they have access to, something they can use on their own. I know even in the toddler room, those toddlers are using that problem solving on their own since they've been taught it. So I, I really appreciate that. There's a question um, that came in from the chat. So I am going to um, read this one out and it says, Minnesota is the native lands for Ojibwe and Dakota people. How does your child care center include the native languages and cultures of Minnesota? So thinking about just the different cultures, um, including Ojibwe and Dakota people. And this can be anyone um, for that. I can answer that. So right away in my mind, uh, I remember a space that we have. Well, we have several spaces where we have images, posters of Native Americans. And even in our preschool classrooms, we have a teepee and a lot of books and a lot of things that the kids can use, you know, to learn more, to ask questions through all the all the things that we have there in the classroom as, you know, imaginative play to, you know, get answers to questions that they probably have and just to also have have discussions through through all that. So I would say that that's definitely an area of growth for my center. Um, however, uh, historically, when we have had um, indigenous families, um, or children with indigenous backgrounds, that has definitely been a part of uh, including family and uh, family cultures and family stories in our classrooms. Um, we've definitely, uh, in the past, had uh, families visit and talk about their experiences or their family's language and um, and been learning about uh, the the original peoples of Minnesota that way, but it is definitely an area for growth in our center that I, I do think is important, especially um, with, I know a lot of our children are at least vaguely aware of the term water protectors, and it's certainly something that has come up. Um, and so I think that's a great opportunity for us to explore that more. I can answer it for us too. We use a home visiting model with our, our parents and, and uh, children and the curriculum that we use is a family spirit curriculum and a family spirit curriculum was uh, designed and created by Johns Hopkins University for the American Indian Health Program and it was in partnership with the Navajo White Mountain Apache and the San Carlos Apache tribes so the curriculum that we use on a daily basis is was designed for our um, Native American community. But we find it really helpful because of the cultural context of it. And we have trainings in, um, because, because it was written for um, a, the Native American community, all of our trainings are basically based and presented by the Native American community. So we are able to, we've learned so much um, about the different tribes within the, the country and, ex and our, our tribes too. So it, it's, it's an easy, easy Passover. It's easy transferred from the families that we're working with and the trauma and, and their culture to, in, in using this particular uh, family spirit curriculum. 
Yeah, we um, aren't, we haven't had a lot of conversations about historical trauma in this um, panel today, but I know that in our future podcasts um, through CICC and MACMA, we really want to uplift those, um, talk about histor historical trauma a little bit more, and really dive into those conversations. So I really appreciate each of you in talking about um, some of that, and Nidra talking about the historical traumas that um, communities have faced um, our Native American community has faced here in uh, the United States and in Minnesota. So thank you for lifting that up. Uh, okay, so um, I wanna go back to the key principles that I mentioned at the beginning. So I'll, I'll say them again, creating a safe and trusting environment, allowing for collaboration, empowerment and choice, and then considering culture. So all of these, I believe, with best practices for working with young children and families. So when we're thinking about all of the stress and trauma that's happened to young children and families over the last year and a half, um, we've all gone through a lot um, with dueling pandemics and um, lot, just many conversations come up right, right before um, the panel started. We were all kind of talking about some of the things that uh, the children are working through and through language at the site. So I'm wondering if you can think of um, one way that you use one of these key principles in your work, and it may be an example of how that might be implemented. So, Nidra, do you want to start? We have been especially focused on collaboration and choice and empowerment, and empowerment through choice. We have really, especially since uh, what happened with George Floyd, and we were able to look within our organization on how we are actually working with, with families. We are, are looking at transformative relationships with them versus transactional relationships with them. And uh, that, along with saviorism, where that creates that sense of empowerment for families. Our goal for families is that they never return to homelessness. That, that's our, our goal and that's what our mission is. And for them not to do that, they have to have that confidence, they have to have a sense of empowerment, they have to be able to make those right choices so that they do not return to, to the situation that they were in before. Homelessness makes a person feel powerless, so we, we're, we are trying to make sure that we empower them always in everything that they do. They're not able to make the decisions uh, that they need to make without that self-confidence and that self-esteem, just like children. We, you know, we, we talk about that with them always, but it's, it's not only for the children, but it's for the parents too. We want them to be able to move forward and empowering them through transformative relationships versus transactional relationships gives them that sense that I can do this. I know what to do to move forward. I love that, and I, um, in, a, in my staff meeting at NAS today, our CEO, Sandra Samuels, lifted up the quote about um, children need at least one adult that's just wildly crazy about them, but she took it a step further, and I, Sandra, if you're listening, I don't know if this is her quote or um, just one that she found, but she changed the children to adults and that adults need at least one person that's wildly crazy about them. And so I think we easily forget that as we work with young children, that the parents um, and the families that we come alongside need just as much of that, if not more. Um, 
of that. And so Nidra, I hear you speaking a little bit more to not just the young children and families, but those adults that, that are there beside them and being wildly crazy about them and really advocating for them. And so I just thought what a powerful um, quote that she brought to our team today and kind of had me pause a little bit and think about that. So yeah, thank you. So one of the things that we really leaned into, especially early last year, was just emphasizing to the children, you are safe right now. And as adults, we were going through a lot of stress and trauma and wondering and not knowing what was going to happen the next day. And we sort of also needed to hear that. But we didn't also didn't want to lie and say, this is all going to be fine. You're going to be fine. It, it, we were really focusing on right now, you are safe. Right now, let's look around. Your friends are safe. We're here in this building that is safe. You're here with grown-ups who care about you. Like, we were seeing a lot of stress and a lot of big behaviors or withdrawing. Um, we did a uh, shout out to my stepdad, Bill, who connected us with a book called Right Now I Am Fine by Daniela Owen. And we read that one a lot. It was a very simple book that just sort of emphasized, like, right now I can look out the window and I can see the sky and I'm okay right now. And that sort of calm reassurance was something we just leaned into because we as adults also needed that kind of reminder. Um, and one way that we helped um, emphasize and, and, and stabilize that safety was really doubling and tripling down on visuals in our classrooms. Um, we already used a lot of visuals all the time for everything, but having the visual schedules available for every transition in the day, um, every classroom started using first blank, then blank folders um, so that you could set kids up for success for every transition and things weren't surprises. And that also, I think, helped with their empowerment and choice a little bit because we could say well first we're going to do this and then what should we do and then we could make that part of the visual so they could help us decide what we would do next um we also i mean r.i.p to our laminator we printed out like every available visual for calm down strategies and emotions and pictures of the kids making the motions with you know themselves and had those in really highly visible highly used spaces in the classroom so that kids could take breaks and sort of have those options right in front of them and say I'm going to, you know, blow out birthday candles or I'm going to push the wall. Um, and they could communicate that or be given ideas really easily. And I mean, it, it really helped us as adults as well, but, um, that, that creating that culture of consistency and, um, and predictability was a huge, a huge saving grace this last year. I feel like it even ties back to that question about language and having language and those visuals, um, that language and the cards and the pictures that the children see and just really helping promote a healing and a safe space. So um, for us, the key principle when I was thinking about this question, it just came to my mind how many of our families always say that it's like a second home, like we're a community. And it just comes so natural and it's pretty much normal for us because that's what we try to do even before all these traumatic events that we've experienced in Minneapolis, in 
the world, right, with the pandemic. Um, it's something that we've always found to be helpful to build trusting relationships with families. Um, it's a bridge, just like that first time parent dropping off their toddler for the first time at school, that anxiety they transmit to them and how we see that reflected in the, their day at school, it's vice versa. If the teacher is nervous, it'll get to the kid, then to the parent. So we gotta have a good basis, a good foundation, um, build those relationships with the families so that they are trusting of us, which then their children will be trusting of us and they will all know by our actions, by what we model, by what we actually engage in, that these are trusting environments and caregivers and that we are there to provide the best care we can always, you know, with the well-being of their kids in mind, so. Yep, beautifully said. Thank you. So I am going to open up the, um, open up the, questions to the chat. So if any more questions come in, I do have two more sitting here. Um, so whoever would like to jump in and answer. The first one is those of us who work with young children each day are so busy doing things. Um, are there activities or practices that we can use while we are with the children that also helps our own well-being? I can start. I actually have a thought on that. So um, <laughs> I, uh, if you look up eagle breaths, um, I believe you can find them online. I don't know if I want to stand up and do one right now, but it's a, just, I think of any breathing activities that have catchy names that children might um, engage with as well. But it's funny in the classroom doing those eagle breaths, um, I'm doing it for the kids. It feels kind of silly. And then I get done and I'm like, Ooh, I feel calm. <laughs> I didn't realize I was doing that for myself. So I really think almost anything we implement in the classroom, um, you know, if you can put aside some of the silliness or the feel of it, it, it does help you, um, regulate and calm. And, um, I know that there's research that talks about how many times you really need that a day to reset your body. And it's a lot. I can't, remember the number off the top of my head, but I think like five or 10 times just to have that reset. And so I think participating with the children in those activities that you're bringing in um, can be surprising in how it helps you as well. So um, what came to mind right now was uh, take advantage of the gross motor activities. I think that those are great for doing yoga poses, yoga exercises dancing. I mean, we're Latina, so at our center, we do a lot of dancing, whether it's salsa or, you know, things that the kids will dance to. Kids bop for, you know, all, all I know. Um, but that that's a good stress reliever for both the children and the teachers. And I think it'll definitely be relieving. Okay. One of my favorite games to play when I'm having a bad day, especially, is Lily Needs a Nap. And I will ask if it's teacher nap time, and they'll say no, and then I'll say, but I'm so tired, and then I get fussy, 
and then I'll say I need a lovey, and then all of a sudden it turns into me laying on the floor, and everyone's bringing me blankets, and they're bringing me loveys, and sometimes, you know, usually someone's like, I will rub your back, and I say thank you, and then they rub my back, and then sometimes they need to sing to me, and then I'll get up and make a move, and they're like, oh, no, 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 lay down, lay down. Then all of a sudden, everyone in the classroom is taking care of me, and it's lovely, and it's not only a chance to lie down, um, it's also, it's a really good cup refiller because even the goofiest, wildest, most challenging children get really excited to help their teacher take a nap. And all of a sudden everyone is being so tender and sweet to you. And also you realize they're modeling what how you help them at nap time. So it's a really nice reminder of like, oh, sweethearts I love them and then also you get to lay down <laughs> it's really that. nice <laughs> all right so we have one other question that came in <clears throat> um, when do you set aside your emotional response so to not get caught up in the trauma and Nidra you talked a little bit about this when or how do you address your own feelings or help your teachers or your staff to do this For, for me, because of the trauma for my families, it's really important that I separate that because I never feel like if I, if I feel the way they feel, if I'm, um, if I'm in that the same mode that they're in, I can't do anything to, to help them calm down. They have to, they have to see me okay because that's one of the ways that they know that they can be okay too. And, and that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. I, 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 there's been so many situations where I just want to crumble or I just want to run, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I want to cry. But just the fact that I know that they need something else, mm -hmm. they need to, you know, the behavior needs to be disrupted in some way, the um, feelings for them need to be disrupted in some way. So I don't, I, I, it's just hard to do, but it, for me, it's a necessary thing. I might, after it's all over, and I get back in the car, I get home, and I, I might do the crumbling and, and, yeah. and, and feeling that way then, but they, that's not what they need at that time. So it, right. it, you have to really focus and concentrate on what they need and not what, what you need. Yeah, and, and I just want to uh, add to that and say, um, we all kind of talked about reflective practice mm -hmm. and the importance of that. And um, Tanya, you talked about mental health consultation um, and just having those reflective spaces that I know all three of you have practiced and had your staff to have those spaces too. Um, that's definitely what that space is, is intended for, is to be able to not only reflect on you know our own things that we're bringing to the table, but also the things that are happening and how we're processing through. Um, I think, it, you know, if we fill up with all of these um, traumas that we're hearing and, and stressors that we're hearing and don't have a place to process that, it can be really hard to continue our work. So I just, again, want to emphasize the importance of having that reflective space um, because working with young children and families is very arousing. There's lots that goes into it, and um, it's just so important to take care of you. Um, and I don't something else I just always want to mention to people in the field is take your lunch break, please. 
take your lunch break. Go I notice so many people not taking their lunch breaks. And I just always feel like that's something I have to say. It's like whoever's, uh, if anyone's seen the meme about anyone who's listening, if you need to change your laundry, go ahead and do that. I feel like the lunch break is the same thing. Take your lunch break, please, because that is time for you. And it's not only for you, but it's for you to replenish to be with the children. So um, I'm a big advocate of that. So there um, is another question that came in, and it, it asks you are asked to please share your thoughts or examples of drawing on children's cultures to promote healing. And one thing I I, I can start as you think, because I know this is a I'm sure um, the question is more how do I fit this in in a couple minutes um, for an answer, but I, I think something I think about is really listening to parents, listening to families. Um, I, I find it very important to ask right away um, for every family that comes in, tell me about your family's culture and traditions. What, what things might you want to bring into this center, into this setting, and um, teach our children, our teachers about, and integrate those into, um, into the classroom or into the setting. I think it, you know, we can't assume what anyone's culture or beliefs are, um, and so I think it's just really important to ask, and that gives a really good way to lift up um, different cultures, different cultures of your families. Um, I think there's a lot of resources out there as well. Um, the website Embrace Race is a great website to kind of process some of these things through. But um, I think, Tanya, you just spoke about dancing and how important that is for culture and just bringing that into the classroom. So I wondered if there's any other things that stick out for either any of you. Uh, I see a child's culture as, as every little bit of who they are. I see their culture as their superpower and their strength. And when we use strength-based strategies and um, activities with them, then we're letting them be who they can be. And that's the best, that, you know, that's that best person of who they are. So anything that we do with, with children, we have to let them be who they are. You know, a lot of times as adults, um, and being in this uh, field for a long time, we want to shape children, <laughs> and we want to shape how they think and, and you know, support how and shape how they feel. But they're the best, they're the best of themselves. And, and for us to accept them just the way they are and think about the reasons behind their behavior and think about how we can use those as strengths for them and not looking at what we need to change or what we need to improve or what we, you know, what, what we should do with them. It's, it's all about them. And, and their culture is, is reflected in their, in their language. We, we all know that, you know, in, in the things they bring to the table as far as how they think and process. So when we appreciate that for whatever that is, then we are um, respecting their, them as a cultural being. That's beautiful. Well, I just wanted to share this kind of fell off with COVID. Um, but our, at our center, one of the things that makes sewer child care um, a little different is that we do require parent volunteer and work time in different capacities at the center. And that can look a lot of different ways. But for several years, we had a parent job 
that was diversity and inclusion and having one parent reaching out to other parents and saying, is there anything your family would want to share about your family's traditions or your family's background or your family's the, the, just something you do in your house that might be different from other people's? Um, it, it not only built community among the parents, which is really important, um, but it also really got a lot of parents very involved and interested in sharing and um, in, in a lot of different ways. That that Our last diversity and inclusion coordinator was amazing and really thought outside the box and so allowed for families to come in and hang out in the classroom and do things, but also just sometimes had people write something up and we'd put it in the newsletter. And so allowing different ways for families to share that um, in ways they were comfortable doing so. Um, and it always kids want to talk about themselves. They're very egocentric in a really wonderful way. And so having that inclusion of the parents um, in that experience uh, really brought children um, empowerment and brought them out to feel more comfortable talking about themselves and their experience. So that's one thing we've done. Thank you. So just similar to not having a colorblind approach. I think we can't have a culture-blind approach in education. Um, that's something that we really must acknowledge their differences, their culture, where they come from, what their families practice. And of course, we're not going to be know-it-alls in everybody's culture, but we have that task to inform ourselves, to seek answers, seek information through their families, direct communication. Um, there's forms that we have that asks about holidays or things that they value, things about their customs and traditions. And we keep all that in mind when doing our planning for the calendar, making sure that we don't have any, say, uh, field trips on a day that their family is celebrating something, right? Uh, being inclusive in that way. So that's how we do, do it at our school and we celebrate their differences and their cultures. Thank you. Thank you all. So I am, we're coming to a close of this panel. The time went really, really quickly. Um, and luckily you'll have more chances to hear these kind of conversations on CICC's podcast that uh, MACMA is partnering with them on. But the final question I just want to ask each of you is, um, I would just love if you could share one thing um, a program or someone who works with young children and families can implement tomorrow to begin thinking about trauma-informed and healing-centered work. So Lily, do you want to go first on this one? Um, I would encourage everybody to um, partner with your families and create a great goodbye routine at drop-off. Like it's, it sets off uh, the kids' day right and um, parents feel included. Um, that might look like thinking about a specific window in your center for waving goodbye or posting visuals on your door. I'm visuals always. Um, like home, school, pictures of hugging goodbye, um, asking caregivers if they have ideas for special goodbyes, if you can accommodate those. Um, I would like to recommend the. Um, wonderful book, uh, Mama's Gloves by Mike Huber. It's a really good uh, book about a, a goodbye ritual and then parents coming back and caregivers coming back. Um, I talk about our Hello Goodbye stool on the CICC podcast that I did with Ariel, so that's my hot tip. So um, I guess what I want to say is to just provide selfless advocacy. So just always keeping in mind the kids 
their families and do it in a way that's free from bias and free from judgment. That's my main takeaway um, for everybody listening. Selfless advocacy, I love that, it's beautiful. And I want to remind everyone about the complexity and depth of trauma and that it's about a person's body, their physical being, their nervous system. What's more complex than that, than uh, looking at trauma in that way? And that, to me, trauma-informed care is about equity, not equality, but it's about making sure that people are getting exactly what they need. Um, it's, it's an individual experience. And as far as healing, the thing that is important to me to remember about healing is that we have to be careful. We have to be very careful with the children that we are with and the families that we are with so that we are not um, taking away any of the healing or stopping any of the healing by our actions or by our words. So to be careful. That's beautiful, thank you. Well, hi there. My name is Lauren Moberg, and I'm the Infant and Early Childhood Director here at um, the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health. And I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, say a few words before we wrap up. Um, so our Infant and Early Childhood Division is really dedicated to promoting the social and emotional development and mental health of young children and their families and caregivers. And we also really aim to um, provide a professional home for those of you that work in the field of early childhood. So one of the ways that we're currently doing that is through our work with the Minnesota Preschool Development Grant. So I just wanted to share a few words about that before we wrap up. Um, so we've been tasked with creating a trauma information toolkit um, for those of you who work in the field of early care and education, and we're calling it a healing resources for healing-centered practice, so a toolkit around healing-centered practice. And this toolkit will provide opportunities to further your own professional development, um, include resources to utilize also when you're working with children and families, and eventually it will also include um, develop approved modules as a part of that toolkit. And so there are already a few resources as a part of the toolkit that are on our website, and this live panel recording will also be a part of the toolkit. So if you're interested in checking it out, um, you can find it at www.macmh.org forward slash toolkit. Um, so feel free to check that out as it evolves. And if you're interested in, in getting involved in that work or giving us feedback, we would love to hear from those of you that are working in the field about what it is you would like to, to learn around stress and trauma and building resilience with children and families. So if you're interested, feel free to reach out to me. Um, my email is lmoberg at macma.org. You can also find it on our website. So before we close, I just want to say on behalf of uh, Center for Inclusive Child Care and on behalf of the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health and the Minnesota Preschool Development Grant, we want to thank all of you for tuning in to the live stream. Thank you to those of you who are planning to attend in person for your flexibility. And thank you especially to those of you on our panel. So Nidra, Lily, Tanya, and Ariel, our moderator, thank you all so much for sharing your wisdom with us. This was such a rich time, and I know that people um, enjoyed this online too. So I thank you so much, and we hope you all have a great night. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for Trauma Responsive Care in Early Childhood Settings. On behalf of the Center for Inclusive Child Care, Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health, and the Minnesota Preschool Development Grant, we're so grateful that you listened. We hope that you will reach out for more information to us at inclusivechildcare.org or at macma.org, M-A-C-H-M-H.org. They have a trauma toolkit that has many resources that you'll find helpful. And we hope you enjoyed this installment and we look forward to serving you in other ways related to trauma.